So if you have a Bible with you, I know that it's the wrong text up on the screen for those of you who tell me after. Um, We're looking at uh, Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. So I say to you, hear the word of God. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning that you would come and open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. I pray where their people are enslaved, uh, that you would make them free. I pray that uh, where people are in fear, you would give them confidence. I pray where people um, are worried about the future, that you would give them hope for a future. I pray that you'd be in my head and in my thinking and in my heart and in my understanding and in my mouth and in my speaking. In Jesus' name we pray all of these things. Amen and amen. So if you've been here, I mean, probably for the past several months, we've been looking at the book of Galatians. If you remember, basically the, the purpose of the book of Galatians was to convince these people called the Galatians um, of the gospel in which they had formerly believed. In other words, the Apostle Paul came into this place called Galatia, which is modern-day Turkey, and preached a gospel, and he preached the gospel of free grace. In other words, that Jesus plus nothing equals everything. That if you want to be saved from your sins, that Jesus died the death we should have died, lived the, li- lived the life we should have lived, died the death we should have died, and rose again from the dead, and faith alone in his work is what saves us. And some people came along after Paul and said, mm, not so much. They said, yeah, you need to trust Jesus, but really, if you really want to be saved, if you really want to be sure, if you really want to make God happy, you need also to be circumcised according to the Jewish law. And not only circumcised according to Jewish law, but also obey certain Jewish holidays and things like that. And so Paul writes this letter to basically address that, to confront it, really, and to, to, to deal with that. And it's interesting that the culmination, if you ask, what, what, how do, is this all going to culminate, that what Paul's been saying, it culminates in this thing called freedom. So the question today, I open up, is when, when, when I ask, when I say, use the word freedom, what comes to your mind? What, what does freedom mean if you had to define it? Is it just, is it just liberation? Is it being freed from slavery? Is it being let, let freed from prison? Is it being able to do whatever you want finally? You know, people who talk about be, being financially free. What is freedom? And when you begin to think about it, it's not as simple as you think. And yet, because Paul's whole gospel culminates in the, the, the first thing I read was for freedom, Christ has set us free. We better figure out what freedom means. You know, I was reading, I, I, as I often do, most pastors do, I'm researching for my sermon, and I'm trying to find some cool story about freedom, and I looked up on the Google, and the first thing that came up on the Google was this website called Free the Girls. Freethegirls.org. I was like, hmm, that's interesting. And so I went to the site, and it's actually a ministry. 
called Free the Girls. And basically the ministry has to do with what they learned was this, is they initially started to free girls, like who who are sex trafficked, who are in basically sexual slavery. And they would free them and they realized that once they liberated them from sexual slavery, and, and then went on to the next girl, whatever, they would come back, and often the girl would have gone back into sexual slavery. Because it's one thing to liberate her from that, but if she doesn't have any place to go, it's really easy to fall back. And so one day, the, uh, one of the, the guys who, was found, who founded this ministry was walking down a street in Uganda, I believe, and he saw a man with an umbrella, and on the umbrella had a bunch of used bras. And he went and asked the guy what was going on. It turns out that bras in third world countries are luxury items. And so now basically they collect 30 or 40,000 bras a year and rescue these girls from sexual slavery and set them up with a bra business. They have some place to go. So you see, freedom is more than just being liberated. Freedom is on one hand, it's a negative or positive, you're free from something, but you've got to have some place to go. And so as we look at the, the concept of freedom today, what, why Jesus has even saved us, on one hand we'll talk about why, what that means to have been liberated. On the other hand, where, where do we go now? Now that you're free, what does what the gospel free you to do? So we'll look at three things this morning. Basically the three things we're going to look at is our freedom. First, secondly, we'll consider our choice. And finally, we'll consider our hope. So let's look first at our freedom. So on verse 1, Paul says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. So he says, Christ has set us free for freedom. And he, so what has Christ set us free from? Basically, Christ has set us free from three things. And they all, at some level, revolve around the law. Remember, Paul is trying to tell them that the law is not how we're saved. And the three things from which Christ has saved us are sin, number one, death, and the devil. Or sin, death, and the tyranny of the devil, as the Heidelberg Catechism would say. So how has Christ freed us from sin? Well, you remember, how did sin even enter the world? It's because in the the very beginning, God placed Adam and Eve in the garden, and he basically... They were holy and happy with God, and he said to, said to them, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And Adam and Eve both ate from that tree. And according to, to, the, to the book of Jubilees, Adam actually died in the day. Not right then. You see, a day to the Lord is a thousand years, and Adam died when he's 970 years. Point is, is Adam didn't live forever because of this thing called sin. But when Adam violated God's shalom or the way things are supposed to be, he violated it for all of us. You know, ask yourself, a lot of people, maybe in church, maybe certainly outside church, would say, I'm a good person. And I love talking to people, and they'll say, well, I'm a good person. I don't need that. And also, here's the problem. Adam wasn't a good person. And you and I got credit for Adam's sin as well. So between Adam's sin that we get credit for, and if you're thinking, well, that's not fair that I get credit for someone else's sin, God put a perfect representative for you, right? If you think you could do better than Adam, you're, you're messed up, I think. But either way, you have Adam's sin to deal with. We have our own sin to deal with, our own choices. And now what, what is sin, right? The, the, the catechism direct, uh, answer is any uh, transgression of or want of conformity unto the law of God. What does that mean? Basically this is that coming and going by both commission and omission you and I sin. It's a problem 
in our lives. And if you don't think you're a sinner, ask yourself this, do, I li- do you live up to your own low standard of morality all the time? I don't. Why? Because I'm a sinner. And yet Jesus has rescued us from our sin. Remember 2 Corinthians 5 said that he who knew no sin became sin so that you and I might become the righteousness of God in him. That at the cross, Jesus took all of our sin upon himself. At the cross, Jesus took all of the curse that we deserved for our sins onto himself and in the process gives us, by faith, all of his righteousness. So Jesus frees us from the guilt of sin. We don't have to be guilty anymore, but he also frees us from the power of sin that we're now able to at least try to live a godly life. So he rescues us on one hand from sin. He also rescues us from death. Now, does that that mean none of all all of us here will will die eventually? But ultimately, if we've trusted in Christ, we will be raised again. And we will be raised again because Christ was raised again. Remember earlier in the book of Galatians, Paul talks about this union with Christ. Whatever happens to Jesus is going to happen to us. And so if Jesus is raised, we also will be raised. And then the last thing is that Jesus saves us not only from sin, not only from death, but also from the tyranny of the devil. The devil has no hold on us. You see, the the way the law works is the law points out our sin. And so why would you look to the thing that points out your sin to save you? But the law not only points out our sin, but the law actually pronounces a sentence for our sin, which is death. And what does the devil do? Where does he fit into all that? And how does Jesus rescue us from that? Well, he rescues us from us because the, the devil or Satan, the accuser, you get this picture in the Bible that every now and then he comes before God and says, God, let's talk about Tommy Allen again. Let's talk about all his sins and all of his brokenness and how offensive he is to you. Well, Jesus has rescued us from that tyranny as well because Jesus stands in front and says, I got it. That is all completely paid for. You have no hold over him. You have no sway over him. And I tell you this quote probably once a month. Remember Martin Luther said, when the devil comes to you and accuses you, and says, Tommy, you're the worst sinner who ever lived. You're the worst adulterer who ever lived. You're the, you're, the, you're the most angry, lying, greedy, covetous person who ever lived. You look at the devil and say, thank you. Because you have just articulated the person that Jesus came to save. He did not come to save the righteous. He came to save sinners, of which I am one. So because of the person and work of Christ, we are freed from sin, death, and the tyranny of the devil. But the question is, what are we freed unto? Right? Because I think the church in many ways is ineffective because all we do is talk about what we're freed from. Well, I don't, you know, I'm free from my sin, I'm forgiven, and now I just go on and do what everyone else does, I guess. That's just not true. What are we freed unto? Basically, we're freed unto a few things as well. One, we're freed to live for God. In other words, we're not running from him anymore, but now we're looking him square in the face and saying, what would you have me do? What is my purpose in life? What is my calling in life? A lot of times people think about calling and they think it's only preachers or missionaries who have callings. Every single person in this room has some calling from God, some vocation, some place where he has put you, where he wants you to live out the gospel, where he wants you to live out uh, a witness of his person and work and his glory and his holiness and all the things that he's done for you. The other thing, you're free to obey. That before Jesus, and remember the book of Hebrews says, without faith everything is sin. 
And yet now, by faith, we can actually try to obey. If you, if you go through the Discover New Hope class, which actually starts in a couple weeks, we talk at some point about our membership questions. And my favorite question of all of them is question number three, where it says, do you endeavor to live as becomes a follower of Christ? And the reason I love that question is because it doesn't say, do you promise to live as a follower of Christ? It says, do you endeavor to live as a promise? In, in other words, do you promise to try? Now, here's the good news of the gospel, that if you promise to try and you actually try, sometimes you're going to be successful, and that's a win. What else did he free us unto? Basically, he freed us unto help liberate others. We're free to, once we have been liberated from our sin, we look around and see everyone else in slavery to their sin. How could you not want to liberate them? You know, if you look back at at heroes like uh, Harriet Tubman, people who ran the Underground Railroad, I I, I think of that, and it amazes me. Because if I was a slave in the American South in the middle of the 19th century, and I escaped, it'd be a a big challenge for me to consider going back and forth, getting other people out. And yet, once you have been freed and tasted the freedom that Jesus gives, how can we not help to liberate other people? And we help liberate other people by taking the gospel to them, by preaching the gospel to them, by living the gospel before them. And all of this we do because we have God's approval, not because we're trying to earn it. In other words, we're free to live for God, we're free to obey God, we're free to do all these things, not in order to gain God's approval. We're free to do those things because we have God's approval. You know that you have God's approval if you have trusted in the person and work of Christ. So on one hand, we're free, Paul says. He says, and for freedom, Christ has set us free. And then what does he say? He says, do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Don't go back there. Don't go back. And it's an interesting play in words because the, the rabbis used to talk about the yoke of the law being a good thing. And Paul says this is a, that the yoke of the law is actually a yoke of slavery. And that's where he goes. He, he basically lays out a choice for us. And that's where we'll go, part two. Notice he says our choice in verses two through four. He says, look, he says, I, Paul, say to you, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. Now, interesting, verse two, Paul says, look. And, And when you looked that up in Greek, it reminded me of my Serbian grandmother, because it has, a, it has a, a, a bigger force than just, you know, hey, look, look. It has, it, basically what he's saying there is mark my words, right? I've told you stories about my grandmother. If you crossed her, right, she'd, she'd point and say, what well, comes around goes around, boy, right? And a chill would come over the room. <laughs> and if she said, mark my words, what comes around goes around, right? That means you leave the house for a little while. That's what Paul's saying. He says, mark my words. Mark my words what? He says that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Now, what Paul is doing here, he's basically setting himself up to be the banker in a cosmic game of deal or no deal. Have you you ever seen deal or no deal on television? On one hand, it's the stupidest game in the world. On the other hand, I hate it because it's so addicting to watch. Right, basically, there's 26 suitcases with, you know, usually a beautiful girl beside it, and the, there's numbers in there from one to a million, and right, they'll basically, if you're the contestant, you pick a few boxes, a few suitcases, and you always want to get a low number, 
right? And so it'll say a dollar, and you'll say, woo, you know, we're great, everything's cool. And then maybe 500,000 will come up, and it's like, womp, womp. And what happens is, at some point, after two or three suitcases, the banker will call. Your odds have changed, right? Because some of the suitcases are out now. And he'll say, you know, I'll offer you $24,000. Now, so, so do you take the easy 24, or do you still try for the million that's out there someplace? Almost no one takes the 24. Open a few more suitcases, you don't find a million dollars. And then what happens? He basically says, he calls again and says what? I'll give you 50 grand right now to stop right now. And mm, a lot of people take that, a lot of people don't. The point is, is I've watched the show a number of times, unfortunately. <laughs> I've never seen anyone go to the end. If, if maybe someone has, I've never seen it. I've never seen someone get down to the very end and the banker come and say, okay, there's a suitcase out there we know for $1 and a suitcase out there for a $1 million. I'll offer you a half a million dollars right now to quit. What would you do? I'd take a half a million dollars. Everyone takes a half a million dollars. The point is, is that the banker's job is always to force a choice. He doesn't let you just sort of linger and languish. He forces a choice. That's what Paul is doing right here. He has called down and said, okay, here's the thing. You have circumcision and the law, all the works of the law, or you have the work of Jesus. What's it going to be? Are you, going to, are you going to press the button and accept it, or are you going to put it down and say, nope, I'm going to keep going by myself? Why would you do that? Paul continues. Notice what he says. He basically says, um, in verse 3, he says, I testify again every, to every man who accepts circumcision, he is obligated to keep the whole law. So what is, it, what is he saying? He's saying something he said before, is that basically this, if you're going to take the law then you're obligated to keep the whole law. The rabbis said that. that it, it, in other words, it's not as easy as saying, if I'm just circumcised, I'm good to go. What he's saying is, if you look back at the Old Testament, one of the biggest sections is this section called the law. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And he says, if you accept circumcision as part of the way God's going to save you, then you have to accept all of that. And are you willing to do that? And most, most people are not. Or most people do what the Judaizers, the antagonists probably did, and what legalists do today is they actually just lower the requirements of the law. Right? That's the, the problem with legalism. The problem with legalism basically is, is about, it's threefold. Basically, on one hand, legalists tend to be selective towards laws. Have you ever met someone who is like really super legalist about movies, but really super loosey-goosey about the way they treat their wife? Or really legalistic about one thing, but really loosey-goosey about like how much they eat, right? So legalists tend to be to, to pick and to choose. And the, one of the biggest problems with legalism is it actually brings the law down. It, it, in, in a legalist mind, he or she thinks he's lifting the law up, but really what he or she's doing is bringing the law down to a place where it's doable. And if you just do these things, you're going, to be good, you're going to be good to go. And what the Apostle Paul is saying here is that when you consider the whole law, do you really think you're good to go? Do you really think that, there, that, that you've got it all under control and that you're never going to break one of them by omission or break one of them by commission, that you're good? He says if you do that, you have to obey the whole thing. 
And then the, the, the last thing he says here about that, he says, if you do this, he says, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. It's interesting, the, the word sever, the word cut, because it, he, he's probably playing on this whole idea of circumcision. He says, you want to be circumcised in order to be saved. You're going to be circumcised away from Jesus. And he's not saying here that you're your fault, you can lose your salvation. It's probably a better translation to say something like, um, you who have justified the law, you're no longer operating in the realm of grace. That if you're a person who's going to be, remember I said last week, people who, t- who try to be justified, justified by the law tend to actually act like the law. And what does the law do? The law points out our sin, the law condemns, and the law accuses. Paul says if, if you go that direction, that's the person you become, and that person is no longer free. And so, so what? What do we do? He lays out a choice. Is it going to be justification, being made right with God by our own works, by obeying either the laws in the Old Testament or obeying, frankly, laws that we made up? Or is it going to be trusted in the person and work of Jesus that he has done all the work on our behalf? That there's nothing else you and I can do in order to please God other than by faith, trust in Jesus. Because if that's where you are, the next thing is for you. You have hope. Notice what Paul says. We close out here. He says, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. So did you see, basically, what Paul says here, if you're a Christian at least, instead of working for righteousness, we wait for righteousness. Instead of killing ourselves, wondering if we're going to be okay, we actually wait expectantly. And what we have here basically is, is just this, is that when you trust Jesus, God proclaims you righteous in him. And you know what? People may know that, they may not know that. But there's coming a day, Paul would say in other places in the New Testament, when we will be publicly proclaimed as righteous. That all of the things that we experience now, the, the, the guilt and the shame, God will actually proclaim to all the world that Tommy is righteous. He is one of mine. And if that's going to happen then, guess what? It's happening right now. That you and I, if you've trusted Jesus, are righteous in him. Notice verse 6. He says, for in Christ Jesus, there is neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Now, why does he say that? I think he says that because if you imagine the Galatian church, these people have come in and told people if you get circumcised um, that, that you're going to be, God's going to love you more. And in every group of people, there's always like early adopters. And imagine people had gone ahead and done that thinking it was the right thing and now they're persuaded differently. And people who didn't do it be like, mm-hmm, told you. I think what Paul is doing is he's, he's, he's putting the kibosh on that. He's saying, you know what, whether you got circumcised or whether you didn't get circumcised doesn't matter. What matters is faith working through love. That now that we have trusted Jesus, now that we've been delivered from our sins, now that we're delivered without works of the law, now we work, but, but it's faith that is, we're saved by faith alone, and John Gerstner used to say, but not by faith that is alone. That if we are truly changed by Jesus, if the Holy Spirit is truly coming to our heart, good works, good things will issue forth from that. And they issue forth from a free conscience, from a free soul. Like, so now in Christ, if that's true, we are free to love. We're free to struggle. We're free from shame. 
I mean, when you think about what is shame, shame, it's one thing to be guilty of your sins. What shame does is shame makes you hide. Shame makes you squirm when people try to put out your sins because you're shamed. And if the gospel is true, Christ has not only taken your sins and your guilt, but he is also taking your shame. You don't have to hide anymore. You know why most people are not particularly loving or they don't seem particularly loving or when someone doesn't come across as loving? A lot of it is because they don't feel loved themselves. I've always thought that, you know, that, that Steve Brown used to always say that, that you only can feel loved to the extent that you've been loved. And Judy and I watched a movie the other night. Um, it was a tearjerker. But before you run out and rent it, know that there are a few foul words in it. Basically, it's called Instant Family. And, and basically, Mark Wahlberg uh, is, is a dad, and he and his wife are getting, they're, they're mid-30s or so, and they decide they're going to uh, foster kiss some kids. And so they decide they're going to foster a teenage girl, and she comes with two little siblings, and spoiler alert, it's really hard for them. And they want to quit, and they want to give up. And the oldest girl, Lizzie, is a complete pill. She is just a pain. She is like the paradigm of what every parent would worry that their child turns out to be, and she is just horrible. And it turns out at the end of the day, the reason that she won't let them love her is because she feels so unlovable. That's sort of the culmination. She doesn't think anyone could love her. She's been in foster care her whole life. And now when someone finally comes along to love her, she doesn't believe it, and she tries to reject them. A lot of us feel unlovable because of our sin. And the remedy to feeling unlovable because of your sin is to look at the cross and realize that it has been completely taken away. And it's been taken away not because you are unlovable, but because you are completely and utterly loved. Do you believe that? Has that changed you? Has that transformed you? How could you go back? You know, I'll close with this. It's not one of my favorite movies anymore because it's so old, but back in the day it was. Remember the original Conan the Barbarian? with Arnold Schwarzenegger. What an awesome movie that was. And, and remember how it started. Basically, these Gauls come in, these barbarians come in, and they, they kill Conan's whole family when he's a, a boy. And then the next scene, you see them out in the middle of the desert, and there's this huge grinding wheel. And there, there are maybe 50 kids pushing this grinding wheel. And every time the wheel goes around, there are fewer and fewer kids on the film. Until finally, there's just one enormous human being pushing that grinding wheel all by himself. It's Arnold. He does it. He's pushing that grinding wheel. And at some point, he's freed from that grinding wheel, and he becomes basically a, a, an ancient version of a cage fighter. And I've always thought, what would happen if someone went to him and said, hey, we want you to go back and push that grinding wheel again? Do you think he would respond pleasantly? No, he's Conan the Barbarian, right? How can, he would never go back. Once he has escaped the bondage of that grinding wheel, how in the world could he even think about going back? That's what Paul is saying here. Jesus has delivered you from this big grinding wheel of your own sin, of your own guilt, of your own shame, of even the, the, the tyranny of the devil. Why would you go back? Think about that. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray this morning as we continue to look at this book of Galatians that it would continue to transform us, that it would make us more and more free in the gospel. In Christ's name we pray these things, amen and amen.